good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. But in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was failing. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you're new with us uh, today, you have caught us kind of on the tail end of a series that we've been doing this summer in the Psalms. We have been soaking in the Psalms this summer. And if you've been around for a little while, you know that there's a couple of themes that we see that kind of keep rising up. Two really in particular. There's the theme of lament. The ability to pour ourselves out to the Lord and to cry out and say, something is wrong here. Something is wrong in my life. Something is wrong in the world. Something is wrong in my heart. I feel the brokenness of where we are. That's lament. And the Psalms of lament actually give us voice to say the things oftentimes that we're even scared to say. That we don't want to think, much less utter or say to someone else. The other big theme that we've been looking at this summer has been praise. Praise of the Lord who is good. Raising our voices, our lives even, in praise to God who is steadfast and loving and good. Those two things together actually show up in this psalm. But how do you hold them both in tension? How do you hold both of those together? How can you pour yourself out and say, 
things are really terrible here and I can be really honest about it and at the same time say the orientation, the foundation of my life is actually to praise God. That's really hard to do together, isn't it? How can you be those who say, you know what, things are going really well right now. And I love my job, and I love my life, and it's really, the, the fruitfulness in my, in my business, I've never seen it before. And so, I praise the Lord. How can we say that, and also at the same time say, uh, my family is deeply broken. And my marriage is in shambles. But still, the orientation of my life is that of praise. How can we say both, uh, things are really wonderful in my home and it feels so wonderful to have everybody together and I'm around my children and they're happy and we're happy. And also to say, I'm feeling the weight of my kids not even getting along with each other. They don't even talk to each other in them anymore. Yet still the foundational orientation of my life is praise. How can we say all of that together? What we're talking about this morning in Psalm 118 is exactly that. It's what it looks like to praise the Lord in all that we do. And uh, if you're familiar with, there's a, there's a 17th century document called the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's, a, it's, a, it's an, a culmination of theology that says, here's what we think the Bible says about a lot of different things. It's actually the, the theological document that our church believes best represents what the Bible says. And the very first question, it's, there's some, uh, here's what we believe, and then there's a part of it that's also a question and answer, it's supposed to be a teaching tool. And the very first question in this question and answer piece is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I don't know that that's necessarily a definition of praise, but it's a very helpful explanation of it. Because when we talk about praise, when we talk about the orienting, foundational direction of our lives, what we're talking about is that all that we do and all that we are is meant to glorify God and to live in enjoyment of Him. We're going to be talking about that this morning, and we'll talk about it uh, in three different ways. We're going to talk about um, what praise really is, the reason for praise, and then we'll talk about the problem of praise, why it's difficult for us, and then we'll talk about the path of praise. So the reason for praise, the problem of praise, and the path to praise. If you are a writer-downer, those are some things you can write down. Let's do the first one. The reason for praise. If you've got your Bible, you can open it back up to Psalm 118. Look at the way that the psalmist begins this psalm. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And if you were paying attention, you realize that that is repeated at the end of the psalm. Look at verse 29. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. It's a repeat. They bookend the psalm. And when you have something that starts one way and ends the same way, it's a pretty good guess that actually the content in between them also is about those things. So the praise of God for His steadfastness, His love, His enduring kindness is what bookends this psalm. And that's really what all of the psalm is about. That God is worthy of praise because He is steadfast, He is loving, and yes, by the way, that is that same Hebrew word hesed that we have seen over and over and over this summer. The covenant-keeping, steadfast, merciful love of God that never ends. 
We are to praise Him because of who He is, because of His character. In fact, what you have is the psalmist in in verses 2 through 4 really kind of acting like a cheerleader. You've maybe seen this at a game where the cheerleaders kind of say, okay, this group over here, now you're going to say T, and this group over here is going to say A. I don't know what I'm spelling, but they're going to spell something else, right? And so each group has its own thing to say. If I were to say, this side of the church, his steadfast love endures forever, and you're supposed to go, his steadfast love endures forever, all together. And then this side, also the same thing. You've got the psalmist looking at different groups, saying, alright, people of God, all of Israel, proclaim with me, his steadfast love endures forever. And now, just the house of Aaron, that's the priest, so it's a little portion of that group. His steadfast love endures forever. And now, all God fears everywhere, Jews and Gentiles alike, who have been converted to worship the Lord. That includes everybody. His steadfast love endures forever. The psalmist is a cheerleader leading all of God's people in proclaiming over and over the character of God. Furthermore, he then starts to lay out his own experience with the Lord. He says, I actually know the Lord's faithfulness because He's rescued me before. Because when I have been in trouble, I have been rescued by the Lord. You've probably talked to somebody or been this person, you know, who when you say, oh yeah, you know, the Grand Canyon, um, I've heard it's really beautiful. But then somebody comes back from the Grand Canyon and they say, no, no, the pictures don't do it justice at all. You've just got to see it. You have to be there. You have to experience it. That's what the psalmist is saying to us here. He was saying, you know, it's great that we say this, but in some ways it doesn't even do justice because I have felt it, I have experienced it, I have known it. You know what that is like. If the Lord has rescued you in the past, you know that it has changed your understanding of what rescue is. If the Lord has saved you, you know that it has changed your understanding of salvation. If the Lord has delivered you or given you comfort, you know that it has changed your definition because you've lived it, you've experienced it. So it's personal here for the psalmist. But it's not personal to the exclusion of being good for God's people everywhere. It's communal as well. In fact, uh, as we read through Psalm 118, you, you start to hear these echoes from the past. Psalms 113 through 18 actually have traditionally been used in Jewish households for thousands of years uh, in celebration of the Passover. They have been those psalms that usually were sung either before or after Passover as part of that celebration, which is celebrating God's rescue of His people out of Egypt, out of slavery, and bringing them into the new land that He's given them. The primary event, really, in the Old Testament. And it's a celebration of those things. And you hear the echoes, actually, in Psalm 118. You hear the echoes of even of that event. I want you to hear it again, really quickly. Verse 14, the psalmist says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Now listen, if you want to flip with me, you can, but you can just listen. This is Exodus 15. This is just after God has rescued His people out of Egypt and He's brought them through the Red Sea. He's parted the waters of the Red Sea. They've walked through on the bottom, on the dry land, and then it has come. the waters have come over and overtaken the Egyptian soldiers who were pursuing them. And Moses, who is the leader of God's people then, begins to sing a song. And these are the words that he sings. He says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. 
And listen to this. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. You hear that the psalmist actually quotes directly from Moses. He's saying, okay, we're going to join in together, not just in praise and God, but we're going to join in really even with God's people for thousands of years, for all generations, praising the salvation of God. Feeling those echoes of that wonderful salvation exodus. But there's echoes that go forward too. This is what's so wonderful about this psalm. It's not only that you get to hear the echoes from, behind, from, from the past, but you actually get to see echoes kind of sent out into the future as well. Again, you don't have to turn with me, but just listen. In Matthew 21, Jesus has been preaching and healing and performing miracles, and he has been steadily marching toward Jerusalem, where not everybody knows, but he knows that he is going to die. And as he comes into Jerusalem in Matthew 21, we're, we're, we're told that there's actually this wonderful festival. There's like a parade that happens as Jesus comes in. He's riding on a donkey. And people recognize, finally they recognize, this is the king we've been waiting for. This is the Messiah. And so they begin to line up kind of on either side of him. And they get palm branches and they lay them down on the ground to create kind of a road for Jesus to, to come in on. And he's really coming in in this procession. And this is what they say. Uh, He says this, uh, The crowds that went before him and those that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! See, Jesus comes in proclaimed as king, and you get those same words from Psalm 118 put on the lips of those people, proclaiming, Hosanna, praise, raise your voices in praise, because blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the king, this is the Messiah. For there is reason for praise that is scattered all across the Bible. It is saturating Psalm 118 here. The character of God. The salvation that He actually gives us even individually, personally. The salvation that He has provided communally for His people in years past. And the proclamation that He is King and ruler over all. It just kind of echoes to us over and over and over in Psalm 118. But there are problems. And this leads us really to our second point. The problem of praise. Why is it that so oftentimes that is not the direction of our hearts and our lives? Well, a couple things. The one kind of easy one that we mostly go to is the fact that life is just really hard. Life isn't easy all the time. And praising God when life is hard is not easy. This psalmist experiences a lot. I don't know if you heard this over and over. Listen again if you didn't. Verse 10. All nations surrounded me. Verse 11. They surrounded me. Surrounded me on every side. Verse 12. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. Verse 13. I was pushed hard so that I was falling. That's four times he said surrounded, by the way. And then he gave the, the, the descriptions, two uh, images of being surrounded by bees coming into you. Or being, being so overwhelmed it was like a fire took over the dry brush. Okay, this is not a guy who's just sitting around happy like nothing has happened to him. He is experiencing the difficulty of life. 
I know there are some of you that feel surrounded that have felt that way before, like a swarm of bees just kind of overwhelming you. When the doctor says um, that word, it's cancer. It feels like you have been swarmed. When you get on your knees every morning and pray for the salvation of your children, and it's just not evident that it's there, that feels like a swarming. When the new job that you've been so excited about and is finally here feels like it's an elephant sitting on your chest and you can't even breathe, that feels like you're surrounded and swarmed. That's one big piece of it, is that the circumstances of our lives make it difficult for us to praise. But you know, actually it goes even deeper than that. The problem of praise does not just come from the outside, it comes from the inside. I'm going to read this one verse again. Just see if you picked up on this. In verse 22, the psalmist says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected. Okay, there's something wrong with that phrase. The builders are supposed to be the ones who are putting things together. The builders are supposed to be the ones who are actually doing the job of building the house and making the foundation. So why on earth would a builder take the cornerstone, the most important piece of the foundation, and reject it? There's actually internal strife coming on here. That's what the psalmist says, is that part of the problem for praise is not just external, it's internal. When you hear a word like builder in the Old Testament, what we're supposed to think is the people who are supposed to be putting together God's house. Meaning, the folks who are supposed to be leading God's people. But there's rejection going on. Jesus actually makes this, I think, really clear for us in the parable that we heard read earlier today. Let me just recap it again. Jesus tells a parable where he says there's a, there's a man who owns a vineyard. He owns some land. He's actually got not only a vineyard on it, he actually has a wine press. It's a winemaking facility. Sounds like it's his business. He goes away into another country. He goes away for a while. And he hires some people to come and live and work his land and produce the wine. To produce his wine and to do the job of caring for his things. And he sends his servants back periodically to check on things, to make sure that everything's going well, especially when it's time to harvest the grapes and make the wine. And what happens is that when he sends his servants in, the tenants, the people that are supposed to be caring for his land and producing his crop, they kill the servants. They say, maybe if we kill the servants, then the master won't really mess with us anymore, and this can be ours. So the master sends yet another set of servants, and they do the same thing. And finally, he sends his son. And he says, maybe they'll respect my son. Surely they'll respect my son. Because my son is the one who is the heir. And so certainly they won't kill him. But that's exactly what they do. Now it's important to remember the context in which Jesus is teaching this parable. Uh, Matthew tells us he's talking to the chief priests and the scribes. Okay, those are the leaders of God's people. They are the builders. They are the ones who are supposed to be taking care of God's vineyard. They are the ones who are supposed to be caring for what God has given them and producing beautiful fruit and showing the world how amazing God is and how beautiful His people are. But instead, when God has sent them His prophets, they've killed them. They've rejected them. And what Jesus says so pointedly is, 
He's now sent His Son. And you're about to do the same thing. See, the truth is, we said this earlier in our service, but there is something embedded in our hearts that makes us not want to praise. It makes us not want to give praise, but receive it. That was, that was, the, chief, um, that was the chief message of the, servant, of the serpent who said to Adam and Eve, Listen, it's not enough to be a tenant in God's vineyard. It's not enough to be able to live in the beautiful land that He's given you. It's not enough to be given this amazing job of caring for it and being fruitful and multiplying and producing and claiming God, claiming God's glory for all of the earth. That's not enough. You have to be God if you really want to be somebody. Friends, our chief end, our, uh, the reason we were created, what it means actually to be human is to pour out praise, to glorify and enjoy God forever. That is our chief end. But our chief sin is rather than to pour out praise is to receive it. He said, we just want to be God. We want to be the one who receives praise. Have you ever wondered why it's so hard to be around somebody when they say like, you know, oh, she is really so beautiful, isn't she? And what's the first thought that comes into your mind? Well, I guess I'm not. I guess I'm somehow less if this person is more. Why is it so hard for us to give praise and compliments to people who do the same things we do? It's because we want to be on top. We want to be number one. We want to be the ones who receive the praise rather than the ones who give it. That is our chief sin. It's the, it's the biggest problem with ourselves. Is that rather than pouring out praise like we were created for, we just want to get it and get it and get it. That's the problem about praise in our lives. But there is good news. Okay, there is a path actually to real praise. Remember how we both started and ended this song. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. How can the psalmist say the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever? He is sitting at a particular point in time. He can say the steadfast love of the Lord has endured The steadfast love of the Lord has been shown to me and actually I've seen it in my people and we can celebrate that. But he goes further than that. He says it not only endures now, it endures always. Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus, though he was by very nature God... Though he was the owner of all things, though he was the one to whom all praise should be given, emptied himself, took on our flesh, our form, became human, and emptied himself so far even that he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. That he might humble himself so that we might actually be made something new and something different. Friends, if you want to see the steadfast love of the Lord in its everlasting form, look at the cross. It is the evidence that the steadfast love of God lasts forever. So steadfast that God would even go to death. That He would go even to death on a cross to show us His love. 
So steadfast, so never-ending, so enduring that He would go to the furthest extremes to show us His love for us. To pour out for us something that we don't deserve on our own. And to give us even praise, glory. To say to us, I'm glorifying you. I'm making you something that you are not. I heard this little uh, this little interview with James Taylor the other day, the, the musician James Taylor, and he was just talking to this guy who has written thousands of songs, thousands of wonderful songs that thousands of people love. But even James Taylor uh, feels the critics' spears, right? But he was talking about how um, he wrote this song, and he said it was, you know, I was kind of scared of it, it was kind of complex, I wasn't really sure if it would go over, and he got a call from Paul McCartney, who said, I love this song. It's great. And then he said there was another time where, um, where Bob Dylan called him and said, Man, I've been listening to this song that you wrote. I just love it. It's really so wonderful. And James Taylor was like, you know, there can be a thousand critics. He's like, but when Paul McCartney and Bob Dylan like what you're doing, something is right. When we open up God's word, when we look at the cross, this is what I want you to hear. Is I want you to hear the only voice that matters say to you, I love you. I've made you my own. I have poured into you so that you don't need more. So that you don't actually need to feel like you're always the best. So that you don't need to feel like you have to receive love all the time. So that you don't need to feel like you have to receive praise all of the time. Because I've given it to you. And my voice is the one that matters. When we stand before the mirror and look at Jesus and hear Him say those words to us, friends, it changes us. That is the path to praise. To be changed by the one who has said, I will fill you and now you can pour out. We will never be able to glorify and enjoy God perfectly this side of heaven. But we'll never be able to do it even at all. Unless we know the everlasting, never-ending, steadfast love of God that has filled us so that we might actually pour out praise to Him. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank You for um, just this wonderful truth that Your love does not end. That Your love is steadfast. That is... um, that it is beautiful, that it is merciful, that it is covenant-keeping, that it is personal and communal. Lord, You, the King, would come and lay Yourself down for us. Pour Yourself out for us so that we might be made whole, so that we might be made Yours, so that we might take on a new name. We need that, Lord, because we are insecure people. We are people who always go around looking for praise. And Lord, in order for us to pour out our praise like you have called us to do, we need to know more and more deeply what you've done for us. Will you remind us of that even today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.